Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This year marks the 75th anniversary of one of the worst plane crashes in California history. 32 people died when a plane heading from Oakland to the Mexican border landed nose first into a canyon near the Central Valley town of Colinga. The way the plane crashed, it kind of spiraled, right? Because it had one wing off, it was spiraling now, and it actually took a nose dive into the canyon so that Everybody was basically pushed through a sieve of metal and gears into a fiery grave. That's American Book Award-winning poet and author Tim Z. Hernandez. He spent more than a decade trying to piece together what happened in that devastating plane crash back in 1948. The passengers were 28 Mexican braceros who were being deported from California to the border. The bodies of the white pilot, flight attendants, and immigration agent on board were sent home to their loved ones. And the remains of the Mexican passengers were pushed into an unmarked mass grave in Fresno's Holy Cross Cemetery, never to be heard from again. To add insult to injury, the newspaper reports mentioned the name of the American crew members, but didn't name the Mexican passengers, only referred to them as deportees. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. And all they will call you will be deportees. The unnamed deportees inspired Woody Guthrie to write this song, Deportee, Plane Wreck at Los Gatos. Here's sung by his son Arlo Guthrie and Pete Seeger. And who are these friends all scattered like dried leaves? The radio says they are just deportees. It's become a folk anthem sung by lots of artists, including Dolly Parton, Who are these dear friends Bruce Springsteen, Joni Mitchell, just Outer National, you won't have name when you ride the big airplanes. and Sweet Honey in the Rock. Those lyrics, who are these friends all scattered like dry leaves? The radio says they are just deportees. Who are these friends? All these musicians have been singing this song for 60 years. The deportees remained unnamed, buried in a mass grave in Fresno, until Tim started investigating who the passengers were. That song hung in the air for 60 years until the son and the grandson of migrant farm workers, born and raised here in the San Joaquin Valley, decided... I want to answer that question. Who are these friends? I'm Sasha Coca, and today on the California Report magazine, we're following Tim Z. Hernandez as he connects with people still touched by that 1948 crash. 
from the families of the long-lost deportees to the ranching community that witnessed the disaster. So this is our town's museum. On a Saturday last month, Tim visited the small museum in Kalinga. It's like a time capsule of the Central Valley town. It's got old oil drilling and farm equipment, antique clothes, furniture, fossils, fire engines. They've even got the propeller of the plane that crashed near here in 1948. Yeah, she's not kidding, that is heavy. This is a heavy propeller. But you can see it's still bent. Wow. A bright green poster board hanging from a flagpole outside the museum announces Tim is here today to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the crash. As a crowd of locals starts to gather, I catch up with some old-timers who still remember the disaster, like Oren Whitcomb, whose family has lived in Los Gatos Canyon since the 1870s. I remember running, stopping my mother, stopping the car, and I ran up to the accident. It was up on the side hill, steep. And there were still parts of the burned-out seats. They moved all the, the plane out, but there were still... And I remember seeing the burned-up seats and all. I just... How old were you? I was 10. It was 1948. Tim first learned about this story decades later, when he saw an old newspaper headline about the crash on microfiche while he was researching farmworker history. He remembered the Woody Guthrie song, and he got obsessed. He tracked down the families of seven of the passengers and wrote about their stories in his 2017 book titled, All They Will Call You. Since then, he's found six more passengers' families, both in the U.S. and Mexico, for a forthcoming sequel. But here in Kalinga, he's mostly talking to the descendants of ranchers who witnessed the crash. Thank you all. Uh, It's such an honor to be here. in Kalinga because since 2010, when I began this journey of searching for this story, uh, this is the first town, this is the first community I came to because I didn't know where to begin. And I'm gonna share with you today uh, some of the stories in this presentation, folks in this local community here that you'll know, that a lot of you know, and some of you might be related to. So, you know, give yourselves a round of applause for that. It's really an honor to be here with you. Tim unfolds the stories he's gathered about the crash into a series of spoken word performances, like this one. His partner, Boyle Heights musician Ana Saldana, accompanies him with songs. The eyewitness accounts, from what I've heard folks tell me about, how it was across the canyon, it looked like you've seen all the pieces of someone's life just scattered. There were papers and shoes and luggage and and just clothes everywhere. And then, of course, body parts, too. It was just in fragments. And that's how it's been. That's a good analogy for how it's been to research this. I've only found pieces of information here and another piece there. A lot of it's gone. Tim's first breakthrough in his research came after he put an ad in the Central Valley bilingual newspaper Vida en el Valle back in 2013, asking if anyone had any information about the families of the 28 Mexican workers who died. I get an email late one night as I'm researching, and the email says, Mr. Hernandez, my name is Jaime Ramirez, and I am the grandson and nephew of two of the passengers on that airplane. Tim gets more animated. He starts to gesture as he acts out the story of how he went to Jaime Ramirez's restaurant and saw birth certificates, photos, and documents showing his connection to the two passengers 
all laid out on a table. And then Jaime said something that changed everything. He said he had a list of the names. I don't know, would you want to take a look at it or... I said, you have a list? You have a list? As fate would have it, this is the first family I would find. He says, yeah, let me show you the list I got. Pulls out this envelope. And from that envelope, like origami, he pulls out this old sepia, tattered, stained newspaper, this big newspaper, and it's like, it's so thin, it's like onion skin, you know? And it blows in the breeze, and he set it down on the table there, on the tabletop. Jaime Ramirez's widowed grandmother had kept the Fresno Spanish-language newspaper someone sent to her in Mexico after her husband died in the crash. And it has the first, middle, and last name of every passenger killed on that airplane. And then it also has the last known residence of every single passenger who was killed on that airplane. And then, not done yet, and then it also has a list of their relatives and their their family members' names also. I said to Mr. Ramirez, well, I don't have that list. (laughs) Jaime Ramirez is here at the museum in Colinga listening to this story. I ask him how that fateful meeting with Tim back in 2013 has changed things for his family. Tim's research has helped him fulfill a promise he made to his grandmother to find out what happened to his grandfather and his uncle who died in the crash. La traducimos a español. I sent each family member a summary of Tim's research, Jaime says, photos and videos, and a cassette tape with the Woody Guthrie song on it. It strikes me that Jaime and his family are some of the only Mexicans at this Colinga event marking the 75th anniversary. But Jaime says the communities touched by the crash have more in common than they might think. Está muy bien eso porque a ver si se... He says he hopes people realize Mexicans come to California to work, not to cause trouble. That plane was hurtling both the Mexicans and the white people aboard toward the same fate. We're all human. Our skin color doesn't matter, he says. That's really Tim's goal with this whole project, to bring together the very different communities affected by this crash. That's why he's presenting his work in both Colinga and near L.A.'s historic Olvera Street, where the audience is packed with Chicano writers, artists, actors. They audibly gasp as Tim reveals intimate details he's uncovered that make the passengers human, vivid. He projects photos of the man who played baseball in the Mexican League in Stockton, the boyfriend who knew how to do embroidery, the son who had a white father and was probably an American citizen. He tells them the story of traveling to Jalisco in Mexico to find family members of a passenger named Luis Miranda Cuevas. Is there anybody alive who would have known him? Is there anybody? No, sorry. There was nobody. Everybody's gone. That whole generation's gone. But then a voice in the back goes, Casimira's alive. Okay? Arturo, ¿qué? ¿Qué dices? They all huddle. Arturo says, Casimira's alive. 
oh, it's my tia, she's alive. Everybody, get in my van, I'll show you where she lives. Everybody gets in Arturo's van, and we're going up the road. We get to Casimira's house, Bugambilia's, and Casimira comes out in a little wheelchair. And she's wearing a little beanie, like a knitted beanie, and then he says, tia, Tia, you're not gonna believe why these folks are here from the United States. You're not gonna believe this. And she says, what? He says, they wanna talk to you about one of your good friends, Tia. A good friend, Tia. Arturo, quien? Says, Luis, before he finishes the name, she says, the one that died in the plane crash? And she said, I spoke with Luis the day before he was killed. He called me from the detention center in San Francisco and he said, Casimira, they've caught us all and they're deporting us by airplane tomorrow. And she said, I'm so sorry, Luis, I'm sorry. And he said, no, 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 Casimira, no, I don't care. I don't care because I have enough money now because he'd been picking strawberries in Watsonville. He said, I have enough money tomorrow when I fly back, Casimira, I'm coming back to ask you to marry me and I'm gonna bring you a mariachi. So I said to her, Casimira, if Luis had returned and he had a mariachi for you, what's the song you would have wanted to hear? Mm. And she said, The crowd at this show includes some of the Southern California families who've only recently figured out their connection to the crash. My name is Michael, my last name is Rodriguez, and um, I was uh, eight months old when my Aunt Maria uh, died on that plane crash. Next to her, they found a bag of blue baby clothes. I was eight months old at the time, and it pretty much became a fact that those clothes were probably coming to me in Mexico. Unfortunately, they never made it. Is that part of why you're wearing a blue shirt today? And that is, uh, yes, that is indeed why. Very proud of it. His son, Mike, heard about Tim Hernandez's book through NPR's Twitter feed and realized his great aunt was the only woman among the Mexican workers who died in the crash. Tia Maria is here as a trailblazer. And we have some very strong women in our family. Actually, probably if it wasn't for the women in our family, you know, we probably would not be as connected and together as we are today. And so I see Tia Maria as being like one of the starters, right, of that tradition. Mike's cousin, Sandra Andrade, says her Tia Maria was a hard worker who came to the U.S. so she could send money home. One time, she bought her family in Ensenada a door to replace the curtain covering the entrance to their house. And, I mean, we're happy to be able to to know now truly where she is, where she's located. We can pay our respects now, which was something we couldn't do before. I I teach uh, ethnic studies in Santa Ana, and one of our slogan is, Our Stories Matter. Right. Because it's it it just didn't just happen in 1948. Like it's happening today, too. There's a lot of people that are uh, that are coming over, that are crossing over, that are losing their lives. But all of the family stand up, please, all the family, Maria's family stand up. Tim Hernandez says he doesn't plan to stop searching until he finds all the families of the Mexican passengers. He's got about 15 more to go. 
In 2013, Tim and the families were able to get a new headstone on the mass grave in Fresno, spelling out the passengers' actual names. And in 2018, the California State Senate recognized the accident and issued a formal apology. Severo Medina Lara. At the end of every performance, Tim reads the names of the passengers and invites the crowd to say presente after each name. Because names matter. Because every life has to be accounted for. Presente. Martin Navarro Razo. Presente. Ramon Paredes Gonzalez. Presente. You can check out photos of the passengers and their families and of the crash itself at calreport.org. Apolonio Plasencia Ramirez. Presente. California's changed a lot since that plane wreck back in 1948. But the challenges some immigrants face here can still be overwhelming. Low wages, difficult working conditions, unequal access to health care. And when tragedy strikes, folks who are undocumented can be especially vulnerable. During heavy rainstorms earlier this winter, the streets in the Merced County town of Planada became rivers. Hundreds of homes flooded. The whole town was evacuated. Now people in this rural, unincorporated community in the Central Valley are trying to put their lives back together. KQED's Vanessa Rancaño visited Planada and brings us this story of several undocumented residents struggling to recover after the storm. And just to note, we're only using first names for the undocumented people in this story to protect their privacy. Husband and wife Rufino and Esmeralda came to Planada 15 years ago in search of better opportunities. They worked in the local fields. Almonds, grapes, figs, tomatoes. They saved up to start a small business selling popsicles and snacks. The flood took out everything, their livelihood and much of their home. Rufino stands in his driveway assessing the mold starting to grow on the still damp seats of his ice cream truck. Oh, no, un desastre aquí, no, aquí tiramos todos los freezer, estaban llenos de mercancía, los tenía bien llenos yo. He says the water destroyed five commercial freezers full of merchandise, plus the truck, around $23,000 in damage. Inside the house, Esmeralda points out cabinet drawers warped from the water. For now, Rufino and Esmeralda have moved into an apartment at a migrant farm worker housing complex on the edge of the town. They're among 40 families temporarily relocated there. Like many other undocumented immigrants in Planada, they still haven't gotten significant financial help. Overall, early estimates showed nearly a quarter of the homes here were impacted. All day, people drive down the main street in trucks loaded with beds, sofas, refrigerators. They unload everything into dumpsters lining the road. I think all these dumpsters have people's lives in it. From the sidewalk, longtime resident Alicia Rodriguez looks on. The losses are especially painful for a community where the poverty rate is almost three times the state's. Rodriguez is one of the local volunteers collecting and distributing donations. Clothes, socks, shoes. She's running a makeshift resource center out of a vacant commercial space. Air mattresses for those that are sleeping on the floor. We're going to be doing microwaves. But the big help, the kind that will rebuild a damaged home and replace its contents, that's left to private insurance or federal disaster assistance from FEMA. And, Rodriguez says, many residents here can't turn to either. They're slipping through the cracks. 
Because to get help from FEMA, you need a social security number. And local leaders estimate as many as half of residents in Planada are undocumented. What I see here is that a lot of them are not going to probably get the FEMA because they're not applying. Down the street from Rodriguez's donation center, a weary-looking mechanic named Eduardo is crouched beside a car, changing a tire. The house he rents with his wife and five kids is half a block from here, in the epicenter of the destruction. During the flood, the water was almost waist-high in his house. His family just bought new furniture and appliances six months ago. They don't have insurance. Eduardo's heard FEMA can help cover these losses, but he figures he's not eligible because he's undocumented. Federal and local officials say undocumented residents can get help as long as someone in the home has a valid social security number. In Eduardo's case, he could apply through his U.S.-born kids. So we strongly encourage those individuals to take advantage of the opportunity and come open a claim. Sharon Wardale Trejo is a spokesperson for the county who's been trying to get that message out. In the first two days after FEMA opened a recovery center in Planada, she says a total of 45 households filed claims. She sees that as progress. So we're seeing an incremental increase as probably the word gets out there that, hey, you know what, it was okay, and they were able to help me. But for some, that help is out of reach. In what's left of Rufino and Esmeralda's living room, they point out their son's high school diploma, one precious possession the floodwaters spared. He's a freshman at UC Berkeley, in many ways living out the promise that brought them to this country. But their American-born son can't help them here. Because he's no longer at home, they can't use his social security number to apply for aid. Rufino says he's the reason they want support, to help him get ahead. They tried multiple times to get help from FEMA and the Small Business Administration, but got turned away. For those of us who don't have papers, there's no assistance, Rufino says. If they can't get aid, he says they'll have no choice but to go back to working in the fields. They'll keep looking for help. They were told to turn to charitable organizations. But so far, he says, all they've gotten is a $250 gift card. When Vanessa was talking with those families in Planada, she found out that the flooding didn't just destroy homes and businesses. It also seriously damaged the town's only elementary school. Fixing it is going to take months and cost millions. But keeping kids out of classrooms isn't an option. So educators in Planada have come up with a temporary solution. Vanessa stopped by to see how it's going. When students step onto the Cesar Chavez Middle School campus for the first time since the flood, they're greeted by balloons, a red carpet, and a DJ. First day back to school. Welcome back, everyone. They were out of school for two weeks. Today is our first day back from the floods. Principal Ildefonso Nava is welcoming back his middle schoolers and some special guests who look a little intimidated. We have our third, fourth, and fifth graders that are going to be sharing the campus with us. Normally, this school serves about 300 sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. Today, another 300 elementary students are on campus, too, refugees from the flood. 
Most of the classrooms at Planada Elementary School got soaked. The youngest kids are doubled up in the few remaining classrooms there, while older grades will be cramming in here until there's a better option. You know, it's kind of like when you open up your house to family members. Navas got some recent experience with this. His parents, brother, and sister live on the same street. All three homes flooded. That first night, I had about 22 bodies in my house. He says his staff have been equally generous about sharing their space with the elementary students and teachers. Just about everyone in this community lost something in the floods, or knows somebody who did. So Nava's goal today is to support the kids in processing what they've been through. In the library, several classes crowd together for first period. They break into small groups for their first activity of the day. The idea is for older students to help mentor their new schoolmates through this big change, to make them feel welcome. Is there anything that is making you feel nervous or anxious? No. No? All right. Sixth grader Alex Gomez makes a valiant attempt to lead a group of fifth graders in a discussion. They're not having it. Were you guys scared when everything was flooding? Like, how scared were you, or were you scared? Not at all. Nope, they say. Nearby, sixth graders Marco Barajas, Natalia Urquiza, and fifth grader Abby Amador are making more headway. I felt like something bad was going to happen to us. Like, we weren't going to have enough time to evacuate. I was praying and stuff, you know? My uncle's baby was in the living room, but we got to save her. We were so scared that we went to the third story on a hotel. We're going to transition at 9-12 to your second period. The students seem happy to see each other and to have some semblance of normalcy, even if they're a little nervous about this new setup. The easy thing would have been, hey, we're just going to run an independent study model. Jose Gonzalez is the superintendent of Planada Elementary School District. He says the pandemic made clear having kids study on their own at home doesn't work for his students. Where are they going to go? Parents need to work. Many are farm workers. More than half of students are English language learners, and 90% are low income. And Gonzalez says his schools do a lot more for families than educate kids. The school system is the hub. We are the heartbeat of this community. They feed students three meals a day and provide a telemedicine platform that's many students' main source of medical care. So getting kids back to school in person was a priority. Welcome, Julian. Hello, Jose. After lunch, fifth grade teacher Nikki Lohr ushers students into their new classroom. So this is going to be our home until further notice. Kids eye the stove, microwave, and coffee maker on one end of the room and scrunch their brows. The staff lounge has become their makeshift classroom. They're kind enough to loan us this space. So that's why we have like a whole kitchen. We might need to use it, we might not. The kids' first task is to unpack boxes that hold the contents of their old desks, at least those that weren't destroyed by the floodwaters. And if you're missing something, it might be in another box, okay? Or it might have gotten left behind. Next, Lore guides the students through a wellness check. Each of them answers a series of questions on their Chromebook. Do you have a place to charge your Chromebook after school? Do you have access to Wi-Fi at home? Okay. Where are you currently living right now? Maybe you're with another family. She asked them to check off any school supplies, personal hygiene, or clothing items they need from a list. I need shampoo. I need warm gloves. At his desk, 10-year-old Edgar Torres ticks through the items. 
What are our undergarments? Laura makes her way around the room, checking in with students. Are they going to give us the stuff we need, or...? I believe they're going to try. That's the best she can offer at the moment. It's not clear who's going to provide these things. But the kids take it in stride. Laura says change and uncertainty are nothing new for them at this point. They started third grade distance learning. Fourth grade was kind of like half and half, and then we finally got them like, oh, it's a full year that we're going to get them. And then this happens. District leaders estimate this disaster will cost at least $10 million, most of it covered by insurance. They're aiming to have all students back at their elementary school by mid-March. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Planada. And that's it for our show this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz, and we had help this week from Aaron Baldessari. Our producer-director is Susie Racho. Our engineer is Brendan Willard, and Jessica Carissa is our intern. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks so much for listening. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.